Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Hey, we're wrapping up our series in 1 John, Light and Love. And so if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, you can turn to 1 John chapter 5. Again, if you have difficulty finding it, use the table of contents, or go all the way to the back of the Bible and start working your way forward. You'll get there sooner than later. I'm here to help. That's what I do. All right. Well, welcome. Good morning. It's good to be able to worship together so we continue to worship through the Word. And so we're going to finish up this series today. And if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Restoring Relationships. Restoring Relationships. And we're going to kick off in verse 14 here in a second in 1 John 5. And we're talking about the confidence that we have in our prayer life. But before we get there, we have to back up one verse, which we covered last week. And that's verse 13, and we're going to hit on just real quick, because it matters. Because it sets the tone of what we're going to talk about, the confidence that we have in prayer. So look at verse 13 with me. It says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. This is life that's found in Jesus alone, by God's grace alone, by faith alone. Alone, And the question is, we're going to kick off things today, is do you believe? Do you believe that? Because once you believe that, it changes everything else. And specifically, your prayer life. This is the good news of the gospel, that we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the target of perfection. That's why God did what he did in the person of Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could not live. To die the death that we deserve on the cross. So that everyone who believes that his blood somehow counted for you and because of his righteousness, we who are unrighteous are now declared righteous because of Christ Jesus, you are declared a son of God, a child of God. By faith alone, by Jesus' works alone, not by anything that we do or have done. We're not good enough, never have been, never will be. It's by his grace, through his sacrifice, that we are made in Christ new creations. And this is a foundation where we start because our relationship with God has been restored through faith in Jesus because we had broken it because of our sin against God. But by faith, we've had our relationship restored. And this is the confidence that we approach God with because of Jesus and who we are in him. Which leads us to verse 14. It says this, This is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know we have what we have asked of him. And throughout the entirety of the Bible, we see the amazing privilege and power we have in prayer. Like, look how amazing this is. If we ask, he hears us. And we have. And those who have been around the cultural swing, some of us get a little nervous when we start talking about this, right? Because we've been influenced by the name it, claim it, blab it and grab it, say it and seize it theology, right? You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, it's all right. But this is amazing. We ask, he hears, and we have. But what's more amazing is that it's according to his will. Here's what I mean. Let's do this. Raise your hand if you've ever made a bad decision. 
Come up, yep. There's some pie. I think that's why are you putting it down so fast? Like some of you are like this, some like this. I think that's everyone, right? I didn't see any perfect people. So here's my point. You know who's never made a bad decision? Yeah, God. Never. Never made a bad decision. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, God, his way is perfect. You know whose way is not perfect? Yours and mine. Welcome to the way, church. I'm here to encourage. So far, you've been called sinners, unperfect people. Glad you're here. But this is an amazing part because we pray, we ask, but it's according to his will. I don't know about you, but I praise God to have not had some of my craziness prayers answered. That he has not answered many things I've asked for because his will is perfect and mine is not. This is the power of prayer that we see. And, and the simplicity that Jesus gives in his model prayer to his disciples when he teaches them how to pray, pray is really amazing if you look at it. He gives basically four requests as Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And you can find it in Matthew 6. So I'm just going to go through it real quick. One of the requests is to give us this day our daily bread. This is basically a prayer for the necessities of life, not the excessities. You know what I'm saying? So give us this day our daily bread. Another request we see there is to forgive us as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. We ask for forgiveness. Another request we see is not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a strength and the alertness to the schemes of the devil because we're all in a spiritual war. So we pray to not be led into the temptation that we can so easily fall into the traps of. But before these three requests, he leads them to say this first request in the series. The first one is, your will be done. That's how he kicks off his prayer, right? You pray like this. Our Father in heaven, honored, hallowed, glory to your name. Your will be done. How's that impact your prayer life? This is how we pray your will be done because I don't want my will to be done. I can be such an idiot sometimes. Ask my wife. She'd be amening right now. But I don't want my will to be done. And so when we ask, we pray the best we can, the best we know how, but we ask for his will to be done, not our own. Not our own. And so I get this question a lot. And so when we come to the power of prayer, here, here's, prayer is a, not a means of getting God to do your will but rather a means to get God's will to be done on earth. This is what prayer is, right? In its purest form. And so with that in mind, I get asked this question regularly. If God is sovereign over all things, then why pray? It's a good question, right, if we're honest. God's going to do it anyway, then why do I pray? Let me give you three quick reasons. Number one, God commands us to. Is that enough? Does that kind of answer the question? Does God know what's best? And for some reason, amazing reason, he calls us to call out to him. We're told in scripture to pray without ceasing, to pray at all times. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, to pray. And Jesus says when he gives this example in Matthew 6 on how to pray, he doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray. So we're called to be people of prayer. So number one, God calls us to pray. Number two, prayer reminds us of our need for God. See, prayer is not a way to get God to see things from our point of view. Do you know that? It's rather a way for us to attempt 
to strive to see things from God's point of view. So we pray. And prayer is an act of worship because when we pray, we're really surrendering our request to God because we know he is sovereign over all things and his ways is perfect and ours are not. So it reminds us of our need for God. And prayer reminds us of our restored relationship that we have with God because of Christ Jesus. So I would say the why pray question is flawed from the get-go. I think about my kids. If the only time my kids spoke to me was if they were asking something from me, which to be honest, it feels like that sometimes, how, what kind of relationship would that be? The only time they'd ever utter a word to me is if they needed something. Parents of teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. If they needed something, that wouldn't be a great relationship. Need, I want, I want, I want, I want. But when you come to understand prayer rightly, the pray without ceasing, it is asking, it is seeking, and get crazy, it's actually listening. How much of your prayer life involves listening? Yeah. Seek, ask, even listen. So when you start talking about praying without ceasing, it becomes a little bit more doable. It's that continually seeking throughout the day God in every aspect of our lives. So we confidently pray. We know that he hears us, but we also pray trusting in his answers he gives us. So I ask you, do you trust the answers? Because we always don't get what we want. Even if it seems right, God doesn't always answer with the yes that we're desiring. But do we trust his answers? Are we confident that he hears us and he answers according to his will? And that's actually a good thing. Psalm 137 verse 5 tells us that our Lord is great, vast in power, and his understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite, whereas ours is incomplete. So do we trust him? And do we pray passionately, trusting him, and pray passionately, knowing that he hears us? Wrap your mind around that for a second. It may be like trying to put the Atlantic Ocean into a Dixie cup. I realize that. But wrap your mind that the creator of the universe who, stole, who named every star and holds every galaxy, planet, solar system in the palm of his hands and right now gives you the breath to breathe, hears your prayers. I don't know about you, but I don't pray enough when I start thinking about the privilege it is to pray. And because of Jesus and your faith in him, he hears you and actually moves. The power of prayer restores relationships. For one, Romans 10 says, for everyone who calls out to the Lord will be saved. And so if you've never made that trusting transfer into Jesus alone for the payment of your sins, the payment that satisfies, do that. That's the power of prayer that restores the relationship that you were created to have in the first place. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then James 5 tells us this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We don't do that so much. And I believe this is the power, one of the aspects of what we do for discipleship groups in the life of this church is that when we come to our D groups, we do create an atmosphere of trust, of transparency, and accountability. And we do confess our sins to one another so we can pray for one another, so we can walk alongside one another. 
encourage one another because we're not alone in this Christian walk and you weren't meant to be. This culture continues to push, you be alone, you be distant, you be on social media, this metaverse that's coming. We are called to gather and be with each other and walk alongside each other. That is what I say at the end of every worship gathering that we are the church. This is not something that you do on Sunday mornings only. The worship gathering is a function of us being the church. The church then continues as you go to lunch today, as you battle all the other churches, right? At lunch, showing patience and love and kindness. At lunch, right? But it goes through all the week because we are the church. This is what we do in being the church. So we do confess our sins to one another. We walk alongside each other, which leads us to verse 16 of 1 John chapter 5. It says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin that doesn't lead to death. And this is where I'm going to stick pretty close to my notes. Because I can go off all kinds of different directions. This verse right here is one of the most difficult, depends on who you ask, to interpret, specifically in the New Testament, maybe the Bible. I believe the point here is not to try to decipher what sin leads to death, which talks about here, and what does not. And this is hard for me because I am a type A, list-oriented person. I love a good list. What am I supposed to do, what am I not supposed to do? I have an app on my phone that is specifically a list app that goes throughout the week so I can check things off. So I would love to find out what, what sin is the most severe, what sin's kind of severe, what sin can I go beyond? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I would love to, but that's not the point. And I'll dive into that. Because we need to see that one, there's not enough ink in the world or data on your phone to create a list of the sins that we have. You guys realize that? I mean, just start with, Jesus says sin originates within. It's not what you do, it's not the action, it's already started well before that. The thoughts, the heart, the motives is where sin starts. So we're more sinful than we think. Romans 1 is incredible. It starts giving a list of sinfulness and righteousness. But right in the middle of this list, it says, inventors of evil. That means we're creating new ways to sin. This is amazing. So it's not like we, we need a list of what sin is. I think the, the, the most... So when you come to Scripture, we say this a lot. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? So if this is hard to understand, go with something that's a little more clearer and then interpret it from there. So when we look throughout Scripture, we see physical death is sometimes the consequence of sin. Ananias and Sapphira, right? In Acts chapter 5, immediately killed as a judgment from God. Physical death. We see in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, you guys can read this later, because I don't have time really to go into it this morning, that there is a calculated, intentional sin that leads to a physical death. And here's what we know for sure. That all sin leads to death. Romans 5, verse 12 is very clear. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people, because all sinned. 
We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We know this. So all sin leads to death. And Isaiah 59 is clear that sin separates us from God. And our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. That's why Jesus did what he did because we could not. Could not earn our way for forgiveness of sin. So we come to this passage, and the point of this passage is prayer. He says about the sin that leads to death, I'm not saying that we should pray about that. Some people just think, they think about this passage as spiritual death. I would disagree. Because here's the deal. Without Jesus, you may be physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. And it leads to an eternity separated from God, spiritual death. But he says we're not supposed to pray about those people. And this is why I disagree with the thought that this is talking about spiritual death. Because we know we're supposed to pray for those who don't believe, who are spiritually lost, separated from God because of their lack of faith in Jesus, their disbelief, rather. So it begs the question, if this is talking about spiritual sin, what is the sin that is unforgivable? Because this is what a lot of conversations wrap around. What is the unforgivable sin? Or which ones are they, right? I mean, is it driving slow in the fast lane? I would say maybe. Just saying. Is that you? Move over. No. Like, think about the things we, we justify. I hear a lot of things that people say, this is unforgivable. I mean, some are seemingly unforgivable. Some just horrific things that people do seemingly are unforgiv- unforgivable. But Jesus says in Matthew 12, People will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Very bluntly, frankly, simply, this is a sin of unbelief. Because you are still stuck in your sin. Your sin have not been forgiven because you've rejected the Son of God, that is Jesus. And there's nothing to pay the price for your sin. And so you're still stuck in it. Helplessly stuck in it. So the sin is unbelief. That's unforgivable. But you don't have to stay there. Forgiveness comes through faith. So who are we to pray for and not pray for? Well, I think it's clear. Unless you're dead, or unless they're dead physically, we're to pray for them. So wrap your minds around that just for a second. Think of all those people that come to your mind right now that you don't want to pray for. Those people who have done the unforgivable to you, right? If they're alive, you are to be praying for them. He says, if they persecute you, if they hate you, we pray for them. We pray. We're praying people. We're a forgiving people. So again, we pray for those who are far from Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 urges us that prayers to be made for everyone because it pleases God who wants everyone to be saved. So we pray. Romans 10 verse 1 tells us that the Apostle Paul says, my heart's desire and prayers to God concerning them, that is those who are rebelling in unbelief, is for their salvation. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. 
And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled to the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. I have a neighbor right now that I've been extremely burdened for recently, more than ever, because Ramadan just ended, right? Or the season that, that we're going through as the Islamic faith. And he, I love this man. He is such a good becoming friend. And it breaks my heart because he's currently separated from God because he's rejecting Jesus as Savior. And he's working his way through prayer as it works. Through God, do these certain things, trying to work our way, and he doesn't know how he stands before God. He knows one day he will stand before God, but he doesn't know if his good outweighed his bad. Here's what we need to know. Your good will never outweigh your bad. We can never be good enough. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth, and I'm the life And no one comes to Father, that is God, except through me. So we pray for those who don't believe. And if it's here, we we pray for and pursue. That's where it gets hard. Jesus prays for Peter, it's amazing. Before he tells Peter, Peter's going to deny him three times. But Jesus says this in Luke 22, he says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is praying for Peter's temptation, that he's going to fail in his temptation. But he's praying for him. So do we pray for unbelievers, and do we pray for one another, seeking to restore those who are caught up in sin? Galatians 6, 1 says it like this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. And we go through this in membership class. One of the aspects of being a Christian is to lovingly walk alongside other brothers and sisters. And that means if they're caught up in this habitual sin, because we all sin, but there's difference in sin and keep on sinning, we're to go to that brother or sister and restore them with a gentle spirit because that sin is causing issues in their life and issues in their relationship with God. Can't lose your salvation, but God is a good father who lovingly disciplines his kids, his children. So we go to those people, we pray for them, and when we see a brother or sister in Christ, we're to go with a gentle spirit and restore them. But it begins with prayer. So we pray and we have confidence in our prayers. And then finally we come, in verse 18 and following, to three encouragements of the reality of having a restored relationship with God. Each beginning with, we know. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Let me clarify this, because we did a few weeks ago. Sin doesn't end at salvation. What does that mean? Evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life means there's a hatred of sin. 
It doesn't mean you won't sin. It means when you do sin, you hate the sin you're in. You following that? You know, there's a... Dogs can be super gross, right? Not as gross as cats, but dogs can be super gross. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Let's get gross for a second. A dog will throw up, right? It's not, it's far enough from lunch. I can talk about this. It's, the dog will throw up, and then what does that dog turn around and do? How disgusting. Eats his vomit. And then I start vomiting. No, it is, it is disgusting. But what's amazing, like that, Proverbs 26, 11 tells us, as a dog returns to its vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. How foolish is it that we continue to turn back to our sin and our sin and just live in the sinful lifestyle? Let it not be so. Listen, we're all going to sin, but the Holy Spirit in us generates a heart of hatred towards sin so that when we do sin, we turn and repent, knowing that this sin is causing issues, consequences, and ultimately doesn't please God, and our heart's desire, because of what the Holy Spirit has done in us, creates a heart to please God, to live for God, for His glory. And we trust Him because He is a good Father. And so we hate the sin we're in. We cannot live in continual sin. Ephesians 4 tells us like this. It says, take off the former way of life, that old self, that was corrupted by deceitful desires. And put on the new self, the one created in God's likeness, in righteousness, in purity, and in truth. This is what Jesus does, makes you new by faith. Reminding in John 11, Lazarus dies and has been dead for several days. And Jesus shows up and they're crying, if you would have been here, right? You would have healed him, he would have died. And so he calls out to Lazarus from the tomb. Lazarus come out and Lazarus walks out still bound with his grave clothes on. Hand, feet, wrapped on his face. And Jesus tells them to unwrap him and let him go. The reason I mention that, because I feel that's why we're, the way we're walking around sometimes. Still walking around in this old way of life with grave clothes still wrapped around us. We have to move on. You have been forgiven of your past. You've been made new. Stop living as if this sin still has power over you. You have victory because of your faith in Christ who was the victorious one. So we're free from the sin. So let's not return to the sin that we've been freed from. Number two we see in verse 19. We know that we are of God. And the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And so one, we talked about we don't do this habitual sin. We're going to sin, we'll fall short, but we're secure in Jesus. We know that we are of God. We're secure in Jesus and we will never out God's grace. That's important. You will never out God's grace. And if you think that's a license to sin, you don't understand God's grace. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You are secure in Christ. That's important because the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Listen, there's two kingdoms clashing right now. The kingdom that belongs to Jesus and the kingdom that belongs to Satan. And these are opposed to each other. 
And the question is, which one are you conforming to? Because we're all conforming to one of them. Every one of us. Which kingdom are you conforming to? Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age or world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So as we discern the will of God, we pray for God's will in heaven to come on earth. And so what we see here is that these two kingdoms are present. We're all conforming to one. But there's a sanctification that's represented here. Sanctification. If you're a Christian, you're being sanctified. Meaning, set apart to God as holy. You have been set apart. And this is two ways. This is one, positional holiness. You have been declared holy by faith because Jesus is holy. But there's a progressive holiness that we're going through, a progressive sanctification. That means God is continuing to make you in his image because you're a faith in Christ that takes some time. We say over time, not overnight. That should drive a lot of grace when we deal with one another. But here we're to conform to Christ, not the culture. Christians are to be cultural influencers, not influenced culturally. And hopefully you're tracking that. And just, I was going to do this, but we're going to do this real quick. Think about if you're being conformed culturally. Think about how you view the happenings of this world. Are they biblical? Are they cultural? I think, because they're opposed. How do you view sexuality? How do you view substance abuse, drug, drunkenness? How do you view life from conception to ultimate reception? How do you view these things? That'll be just a test on how you're conforming. Are you conforming to Christ and his word? Are you being influenced, conformed by the kingdom that is under the sway of the evil one? And finally, verse 20, we see the third encouragement. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true one and eternal life. God is a giving God. I don't know if you know this. God is a giving God. We... We'll say here in a few minutes, when we come to give an offering as a heart of worship, we ask you to give out of a heart of worship. Give out of a heart of generosity of worship. Our giving should be worship. And that's just one aspect we give. Because of God, who is the ultimate giver, transforms us to be giving for his glory. What do I mean? God has given understanding, which we see here, by giving his son through whom he gives eternal life. Are you tracking there? Gives us understanding through giving us his son who gives eternal life. Again, John 3, 16, I quote all the time because it's so overquoted, I think we miss it. But it's so powerful. Jesus says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that everyone means everyone. Your baggage, your background, that's not disqualifiers. No matter what you've done in the past, it is not a disqualifier from God's grace and eternal life through your faith. 
In John 5, 11, we see that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That is the only way. This is eternal life. You're alive right now, but eternally, without Christ, you're separated. Spiritual death. But eternity in life is given by faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. Now, I was thinking about this and what that life looks so different. Why Christians should live so differently. I'm reminded about so many people that when they get a second chance at life, whether it's from a heart attack or surviving an illness or a car accident, their whole mindset shifts because they've given a second chance at life. Shouldn't ours? When you encounter Jesus, our whole mindset shifts because we begin giving a second chance at real life. Jesus calls the abundant life. To know him and to be known by him changes everything. And so this is the reality of having restored relationships, specifically with God and everything flows from there. And you see one final verse there, verse 21. It says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And it may seem out of place. It's a weird closing. I wouldn't recommend that being your closing line in your emails or your letters if you still write those. Guard yourself from idols. But what we need to see here is, one, idolatry is anything you put in place of God. Anything. A lot of places in the world, they have literal idols. Here in our culture, maybe not so much, even though there are definitely idols in our life that we need to be aware of. I look at passages that say specifically to be alert. Be alert in 1 Peter 5 because our, we have an adversary, the devil. Ephesians 6 tells us he's actively scheming against you. And so this is really a recap from the whole letter, but this is what I think the most subtle scheme of the adversary comes through your scheduling. We're talking about idolatry. But think about your schedule. If I were to look at your schedule, what are your priorities? Your schedule reflects that. Like, think through that. What are the priorities of your life? Is it God or is it you name it? C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters back in the early 40s. This is interesting. And one of the, the preface is that you have the devil, the adversary, and his allies, and they're discussing ways, fictional, discussing ways to distract Christians from being effective for the kingdom of God. That's the whole premise of it. But I wanted to read a fairly lengthy excerpt. Because I think it touches on exactly the subtle nature of the schemes of the devil that can lead us into idolatry and away from walking in the power of Christ Jesus and the spirit he gives us. So listen to these words. Some will be dated, but I expect that most of you will see this is right on to what we experience right now. It says this. We can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate relationship with their Savior. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So, let them go to their churches. Let them have their covered dishes. Amen. But still, their time. So they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what we want you to do. 
said the devil. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining the vital connection through their day. How shall we do this? His his demon shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. He answered, tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go back to work for long hours and the husbands to work seven to six, six to seven days a week, 10 hour to 12 hour days, so they can afford, afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so they cannot hear the still small voice. Entice them to play the radio or cassettes whenever they drive. To keep the TV, VCR, or CDs and their PCs going constantly in their home and see to that every store and restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their minds and break that union with Christ. Fill the coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with the news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail, mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and promotional offers, free products, services, and false hopes. In their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return their recreation exhausted. Keep them too busy to go out in the nature and reflect on God's creation. Send them to music, music parks, sporting events, plays, concerts, and movies. Instead, keep them busy, busy, busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave troubled consciences. Crowd their lives with so many good causes, they have no time to seek the power of Jesus. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause. I don't know about you, but I can fall into that trap. That trap of idolatry, of putting a whole bunch of non-essentials in front of the essential relationship that I enjoy with Christ Jesus. I can become very easily working under my own power. And forget Jesus in the daily routine of life. As we close, I was just reminded in Exodus chapter 20. You see, the Israelites were in physical bondage in Egypt. And God heard their cries, heard their prayers, and did something about it through the person of Moses. And delivered his people from the bondage of the Egyptians. But I see this physical reality of the Israelites connects very specifically to the spiritual reality that we experience now. Galatians 5 tells us, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. See, having this restored relationship with Jesus, we are free not to sin. We have power over the adversary. We have freedom to walk with hope, to be fearless because of what Christ Jesus did in our lives. 
So we pray. So we pray and we listen and we seek and we come with confidence knowing that God, who is sovereign over all things, all the time, through your Monday, through your Sunday, and everything that you'll encounter, we trust him and we pray, knowing that he hears us. Galatians 5.16, I'll close with this, says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Jesus said, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So let me ask you this. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up, and we're going to continue worshiping through singing. But where are you at today? One, how is your prayer life? Do you have the confidence that you are being heard because of your faith in Jesus? That changes things. Do you pray bold prayers? Do you pray confident prayers? Do you pray just God-glorifying things that only he can do prayers? Think about this. If God was to answer every one of your prayers from this past week, what would that look like? How many people would be saved? How many people would be fed? How many childless people would have kids? How many fatherless child would have fathers? How many prayers are we praying like that if God was to answer all your prayers this past week? What about you? How are we praying? Do we have this confidence? And as we start this time, the confidence starts with your relationship with Jesus. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Have you used excuse like God can never forgive this thing? Let me tell you, God will forgive that thing that you're trying to make an excuse for because God's grace is more than your sin. God's love is more than anything that you deem to be unlovable or anything that people have told you is unlovable. Those are lies from the pit of hell and a scheme of the devil to, te to keep you detached from the one that loves you, is calling you, and desires to have this relationship to where we can cry out, Abba Father, Daddy, to the one true God changes everything. So we're going to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to invite you to pray. And then I'm going to invite you to respond in worship. And for you, that may be standing and singing, but maybe for many it's going to be sitting and praying or gathering and praying to what the Lord's leading in your heart to those around you. We'll have a prayer team over here. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. But maybe for the first time, you finally connected the head to the heart in your trust in Jesus, knowing that I've been raised in church. I can quote all the Bible verses, but the first time I see my need for Jesus. Or maybe those things that you've deemed unforgivable, you've seen that God will and has forgiven in Jesus. And you believe it. When Jesus said it is finished, that meant for you, your sin has been satisfied and fully paid. Now we can walk in freedom because of Jesus and what he did for you, applied by your faith. Do you believe that? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to respond and keep worshiping this amazing God that we serve. Father, we just ask right now that you lead us in this time of responding to what you're prompting in our hearts. 
Lord, help us to respond in faith. Whether maybe it's the first time finally we see that Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Nothing we can do or ever will be able to do, no lifestyle that we live, we can never be good enough to earn the life that we've been created to have in God. But Christ, who died for our sins, brings us eternal life by faith alone in him that he did what he did on that cross for us. We thank you, Father, for the goodness of your grace in our lives. Lord, teach us how to pray. Even as we come together, sometimes we come together not even knowing what to pray, how to pray, but your word says that the Spirit prays when we don't even know how to pray. So let's come confidently before you, knowing you're a good Father who desires his children to come to him, to seek you, to ask, and to listen. Lord, lead us in this time of response. Lead us in this time of prayer. Lead us in this time of worship. And Lord, I ask that you encourage our hearts and our minds in this moment with the presence of your Holy Spirit and the newness of life that you give us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you. And we pray this all in the name that is above every other name, the name that only to which men are saved. That is the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.